out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. Let's just be honest here. This week, it's going to be the turn of the writer, Victor Bokris, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and also working and uh, writing about people like Lou Reed, The Velvet Underground, Andy Warhol, Keith Richards, also William Burroughs, Mick Jagger, Patti Smith, and much, much more. Anyway, this is the interview, so I'll just get, just get straight to it, really. Um, so after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very interesting subject that was the early formative years of Victor's life. Victor, you've got to tell us everything and more. Anyway, it's over to you. Tell us about your childhood. Well, I, grew, I was born just outside of Brighton in 1949. And uh, I uh, lived at, in, in London and Brighton. And uh, I moved to the States in 1953. My parents were academics. So they sort of moved from university to university. Yes. And uh, I, I moved to, I, I went back and forth between England and America during my childhood. Uh, so I ended up at the age of 10 coming back from America and going to English boarding schools. And that was the most important part of my education. I was very lucky in going to two very good schools. I went to a school called Great Ballard. It's a prep school. I went to rugby as a, you know, my junior senior school. And I had a very good time in those schools. I really became myself in those schools. I, my parents were a little bit weird. I didn't spend that much time with them as, an, as a child. They kind of farmed me out to various relatives and things. And they, they always got on the verge of getting divorced and so forth, you know, having troubles. So uh, when I was kind of recognized by the headmaster at Great Ballard, that kind of brought me into my own. And um, in my first term at rugby, I wanted distinction in writing. And at rugby in those days, nobody wanted distinction except you were in the very top form. I was in the very bottom form. I won this distinction in writing. And uh, that sort of began, I suppose, it, it planted the seed of wanting to be a writer. And, uh, and then I, went, I was at rugby only for one year and one term. I, was, I went there in the fall of 63. I was there through 64. I had a wonderful time there, and I made those kind of first friendships you make that are going to last for life, collaborative friendships. I had a very close collaboration with another boy in school called Andrew Russell. And uh, my father sort of tore me out of there uh, when he discovered my, my mother was living with another man. He got enraged. He tore me out of there against my wishes and transplanted me to Philadelphia, where I went to a, a very good school there called Central High. Better take an exam to get into a special school. And um, I thrived there, but something very, something very profound happened to me in the shift. That is, when I was at rugby, I was kind of the leader of the gang. I was sort of, you know, I guess I had some charisma or something. I had a little rock and roll band. I was the singer and so forth and so on, you know. Also, I did very well academically. But when I came to the States, I was no longer the leader of the gang. I became like the Tonto to the Lone Ranger type thing, you know. And I switched from writing about myself to writing about other people. And that was really a profound thing because in my first term at Central High, 
I ran into, I went to an Andy Warhol opening. I went to a Bob Dylan concert and I discovered Allen Ginsberg's poetry. I never heard of those people in, in, in England at that time. And uh, so discovering a Bob Dylan, Allen Ginsberg, and Andy Warhol was really kind of, was just kind of the ground of my career, you know, yes. again. And, uh, and so, you know, I, uh, and I, then I had a, a long period in Central High School. I went to the University of Pennsylvania, which is a very good university. But my main collaboration at the University of Pennsylvania was with a chap called Elliot Cook, who ran a small restaurant. He hired me to work at his restaurant. We became kind of partners, collaborators on the restaurant. It was very exciting. When I graduated from Penn in the summer of 1971, I had no particular plans as to how to make a living. I had, I had no family money because my father had sort of disinherited me and rejected me and so on. I left home when I was 17. And... Um, and I, but I met this chap in, in, in Cambridge, uh, Harvard University in Cambridge, Mass, called Andrew Wiley, uh, who was about a year older than me, and we were both poets. Uh, uh, and uh, he kind of, uh, you know, liked my poetry, and we started talking to each other about that. And I, I, had, a, I had a part-time job at a press, press called the Bullcroft Press, it's a reprint house in Philadelphia, run by two wonderful brothers, Ralph and Jerry Wyman. And they came to me as I was about to graduate and said, what, what do you want to do when you graduate? And I said, well, actually, I'd like to run a small poetry press because I wanted to get into the poetry world, you know. And it was hard to get into that world, uh, to crack that world, as it were, unless you were like a brilliant poet or, or had a press which could publish other people, would, would draw attention to you, you know. So Andrew Wiley, I, I decided to ask Andrew Wiley to collaborate with me on this press, right? And um, so we, we, we went, we drove out to California together. We did the kind of on-the-road trip together, discussing all of this and making our plans. And then uh, this is the summer of, of 71. And then uh, that fall in September, he had stayed in California. He came back to New York. And he called me up and he said, uh, I hope you don't mind, but I've opened a Telegraph Books bookshop. And we called the first Telegraph Books, Telegraph Books bookshop in New York. And I said, that's marvelous. So I went up to see him to plan our who we're going to publish and all that kind of thing, you know? And um, in that, we were going to publish his, his book first. And also he, he introduced me to the poetry of R.M. Saroyan, who at that time was probably the most famous young American poet in, 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 in the States. And uh, very well known for his one-word poems, his concrete poetry and so on, even in Europe. And uh, so Andrew said to me, I think that Saroyan is the best writer. And I said, I can't stand Saroyan's work. That's the question. So while he had a fantastic ability to persuade you to see things his way, which is really his greatest talent to this day. And so he called up, he said, well, no, we got to do this. And he called up Soren on the phone. Soren was in Cambridge. And Soren jumped on a bus and came down to New York in the middle of our, our day-long meeting. And that got, got there in the evening. And we had a wonderful contact, the three of us, and decided to let the three of us who run the press together. And then we do Soren's book as the second book. That was the beginning of Telegraph Books, which is a small press. We published 10 books. We published Patty Smith's first book. We published a brilliant book called Scars by Bridget Polk, the, the Andy Warhol superstar just died recently, and a number of other, you know, um, it, it's like the cutting-edge voices of the early 70s, you know. Yeah. And that press made an impact. In fact, in the 90s, it was written about as one of the seminal presses of the early 70s. So it made some impact, and that kind of launched me on my, on my career. Yes. There are many, many stories there that, that, that in. Um, 
uh, I, we, we, used, we used to go to England a lot. We went to England three times in the year. We were doing telegraph books. And uh, I got a very friend with Tom Pickard. And uh, I, so I remember going up to Newcastle with Tom and Andrew do some poetry. And so I met his wife, Connie Pickard, an extremely beautiful woman. And um, so, you know, it's a long story. I, I don't know how much you want me to go into detail here, but that's the beginning of, of, my, of my writing career. Yes. And then... And then so so we did we were based in Philadelphia, and we I said to Wiley at one point I said you know um, I think we've done a lot with poetry I think we could do much more than what we're doing than just repeat ourselves so I said I really like doing interviews I've been interviewing some poets I said I love doing interviews because particularly if you interview poets the poetry of human speech comes out and so I think that that, that interviews are very poetic. And so we, we started doing all these interviews with sort of like the hip poets of those days, like Ted Berrigan, Ron Padgett, Ann Waldman, uh, you know, others, John Wiener, Robert Creeley, and so forth. And uh, we actually put together a book called The Life of Poetry, which is about 15 interviews of poets introduced by Eric Motsham, a professor of uh, English of American Literature at the University of London. And, uh, and that was a great book. We never got it published, though. No. But we, we, I then moved to New York and worked with Wiley. And we went. We sort of graduated to become really big interviewers, interviewing for a penthouse and Playboy and People magazine and things like that. You know, doing big interviews, lots of famous people. But we were still more focused on the people we were simpatico with, like Warhol, Ginsburg, Salvador Dali, Lou Reed, Mick Jagger, William Burroughs. We interviewed all those people, and uh, it was a magnificent, magnificent experience. Yes. But that all crashed when uh, when Burroughs was doing the interview and Mick Jagger was doing his interview and we couldn't find a place to publish the interview or so. And then a week later, we got a phone call from a friend of ours called Gerard Malanga, who was right-hand man in the 60s, and uh, was, we published a book of his poetry, Telegraph Books. And uh, he was now working for a publisher called Maurice Gerudius, who was a legendary publisher because he'd, he'd run the Olympia Press in Paris in the 50s, published Naked Lunch, Robert the Greek, Lolita, and many other, many, many other, you know, seminal books. He, he now moved to the States, and he wasn't doing that well, but he had a small press. Not, not a small press, he had a press publishing mass paperback books. And he, he wanted, Gerard wanted poets to write about sports stars. Well, during our interview period, we'd done a lot of interviews with Muhammad Ali. Our biggest connection was Muhammad Ali. We went to, I, I called him on the telephone. I had a much stronger English accent in those days. I, I said, Mr. Ali, I'd like to interview you. He said, what do you want to hear me about? And I said, poetry or poetry. He said, come up tomorrow. <laughs> he loved talking about his poetry. And we, so we published this little book called Ali, uh, Poet, Prophet, uh, Fighter, Poet, Prophet, or something like that. Yes. And uh, it, it was a wonderful book that included about 30 of his poems and some wonderful raps. And it's a long story. The book was shredded by the publisher. It never got to the public. But, but Ali loved the book. It was the only book I think he ever read in his life. And uh, in 2000, and the book was published in 1974. In 2009, his wife wrote to me saying she was reading the book to him when he went to sleep at night. It's a hell of a thought, you know. Yes. <laughs> it was the one book that really captured a wonderful time in his life before he was taken over by the Muslims and his life was destroyed. So our interviews, you know, our interviews and our work had some kind of lasting impact. And we and Wiley and I had a great collaboration. We called ourselves Barkus Wiley, and Barkus Wiley was like one person. And uh, we did about well, three years' work as Barkus Wiley, 
and then we, you know, we got to the point where we'd done everything we could do together, and we weren't, we weren't really making it that much. Um, and so we separated in a friendly manner. Yes. And I went on to have a solo career, and, and that uh, that slowly led me really into the world of Andy Warhol and William Burroughs, and then later on, punk. Yes. And so at one point, I'd say in about 77, 78, I was the only writer in New York, or anywhere really, going on a daily basis from the factory to William Burroughs' bunker to the, to uh, Blondie's apartment or Ramon's apartment or CBGB's, something like that, you know. And I wonderful, you know, the sort of beginning of what I saw for the beat punk universe. I think there's a great deal of, of comparison between the beat generation in the 1950s and the punk generation in the 1970s. It's like out on the same landscape, for one thing. Alan Ginsberg still lived around the corner from CBGB. William Bonner's lived about three or four blocks away on the Bowery, about a block away from Bonner's apartment. So they, they were very much part of that thing. And, and Warhol also was, too, because he was underground. Yes. I, I got very friendly with Lou Reed back, back in the mid-70s. We're really friendly. He's a wonderful chap, a really, really friendly guy. And he's very supportive of me. Yeah. And, uh, and so on. So I had these wonderful relations with these people, which later on led to collaborations, real collaborations with Warhol and Burroughs. Um, and uh, then I started writing books, you know. Yeah. I started with William Burroughs' book, uh, with William Burroughs' book in the bunker. That was in 1981. Then... Making Tracks, The Rise of Blondie was in 1982. Uptight, The Road Underground Story was in 1983. And those books were very well received. They were also not the Blondie book, the other two were published around the world and are still in print in some countries today. Yeah. Um, Just come in. Should I start? You want to introduce? No, no. I was just saying, just slightly going back. There was something you uh, mentioned that you know the William Burroughs and the Mick Jagger interview. I mean, yeah. is it possible just to kind of explain what happened there and 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 um, just set the scene and then the fallout of that? Sure, absolutely. So uh, let's see now. Um, well, this 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 was in 1974, and uh, we've been doing these interviews since since early '73, so we were really cooking. And uh, we used to go to Max's Kansas City, which was the hip, hip downtown late night bar and restaurant in New York in those days where you'd see all sorts of people. I lived right around the corner from it, and Andrew lived a couple of blocks away. So one night, Andrew calls me on the phone from Max, and he says, guess who's here? I said, Bob Dylan? No. I said, William Burroughs. William Burroughs had just returned to New York after 25 years of self-imposed exile out of the States. And he just returned. And uh, there he was, seeing in a booth, looking like William Burroughs. And uh, so we approached him and uh, asked if we do an interview. And he was with his, his amanuensis, his secretary at the time, James Grauholt. And they said, sure, and they, they set up an interview for us. So in those days, Wang and I used to dress in, in Brooks Brothers suits uh, and to ties and, and, and carry a briefcase and an umbrella. Very unusual for those days. You know, we're kind of seeing what was going to happen. So we went over to Burroughs' apartment. And we walked in, and apparently he thought we were from the CIA. Uh, he was pretty paranoid, because every time he tried to return to New York, the police set, set him up for a bust. So he, that's why he had not stayed in America. And so he just got there. He'd only been there for a few months. So he was, you know. So we did this interview, which lasted for about an hour and 15 minutes, in which he, he, all he said was, no, yes, I don't think so, I don't know, things like that. You know, it was hopeless, absolutely yes. hopeless. And uh, we went home, you know, bemused. But we called up a, 
a friend of ours named Wolverine, who ran the St. Mark's Poetry Project in New Boroughs, and said, Anne, could you put in a word with Bill for us? Because he obviously has this wrong impression. So she called him up and he says, oh, okay. And he, 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 said, he agreed to see us a second time. And so the second time he came over to my apartment with James. James is like 21 years old. Um, and uh, we, did a, we did a dream interview. I mean, we did a dream interview. We smoked some pot. We, we drank some whiskey. We had a very nice dinner. And he, he, was, he was just amazing. And he was like, you know, William Burroughs, as you would imagine, you know, brilliantly uh, rapping about this and that, you know, talking about shooting his wife, talking about writing Naked Lunch. Everything you could possibly imagine was in that interview, you know. It was the best interview we had ever done, you know. We were ecstatic. But we'd agreed, of course, to let him see it before we published it. Because under the circumstances, it was kind of a collaboration. And so we dropped it off at his place, you know, a couple of days later after we typed it up and edited it. And, uh, you know, um, and in fact, in between that, we interviewed Jagger. And we were waiting to hear if Jagger was going to call us about his, we showed him his interview too, we were waiting to hear from him. And we got this call from Bill um, in a completely different voice than he had before very kind of formal and obviously kind of hostile. It said to come over and get ready for some surprises. So we were a little bit frightened because Bill, Bill could be a frightening person, you know. He had the authority, a very heavy authority of being William Burroughs. And, yes. uh, I need a shot his wife as well. Yeah, went over to his uh, apartment on Franklin Street in those days in the Soho. And um, basically, he, he rejected the interview. Um, he... He said that um, he thought we we tricked him into talk because he actually told us about his sex life in some detail, like the first time he had sex, things like that. He said he thought we tricked him because we had told him stories of our sex lives. But you know, I, I think that he was experienced enough in interviewing to know that magazines never publish stories by the interviewer. You know, yes. magazines never let the interviewer tell the story. They have to just be questions and stuff. I'm sure he knew that. He'd been interviewed many, many times. But for some reason, it, was, it turned out his, his amanuensis for our horse had a, had a sort of fear of any young men becoming friendly with Bill because he was frightened he'd be replaced, although we had no interest in replacing him. He was a very good secretary to Burroughs, very, very good. So he had actually, to some extent, engineered through paranoia this response. And we were absolutely horrified because, you know, it was like, it was a really great interview, and we we'd done it with love, and 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 we made him look terrific, and evidently in public, we wanted to see. Very people knew he was back in, in the country. Wanted to have, look, look, William Burroughs is back. Look at this, you know, sort of thing. We we're going to send it to Rolling Stone or People Magazine. We had a lot of contacts with magazines in those days. We could have sent it to the various people. And uh, I remember walking home after that meeting with him, with with the interview in our hands, and it started to rain very, very heavily, and we couldn't get a taxi. And by the time we got back to my apartment, we were literally just drenched, the way you're completely drenched, you know. And we were pretty upset. And so, unfortunately, Andrew called James on the phone and started yelling at him, uh, which I thought was really the wrong thing to do, obviously. Um, but he did. And then the next day, we got a letter from Burroughs' lawyer saying, you know, we couldn't publish it and so on and so on. Legally, we could have published it because nothing he said was libelous, and we had it on tape. And it was just, you know, there's no, we could have published it, but, yeah. but we, we wouldn't have done that at the time. But it was absolutely devastating to us because we were quite serious about the interview as an art form. We really thought it was an art form, and I think it is. And we, this is one of the best things we've ever done, you know. Uh, 
Meanwhile, we'd done this interview with Mick Jagger, which also was very good. Jack, Jagger does not give very good interviews. You know, he's very charming, but he doesn't really say very much in his interviews. And we got him to say some pretty quotable things, you know, some good, solid things. It was a good interview. It was a turn-on. And uh, We Magazine, which is the sister of Playboy Magazine, was planning to do a, a 30-page spread on the Rolling Stones when the next album came out. And that was Black and Blue, I think. Yeah. No, no, no. It would, must be in Sony Rock and Roll because it was in, in 74. Yeah? Um, and so, you know, and, we, and we'd also interviewed Bill Wyman and all sorts of things. And Jagger was through the interview. And once again, you know, we said on the tape, this is for Playboy Publications, Mr. Jagger, we had perfect legally could have used the interview. The Playboy got cold feet because they'd been sued by someone recently, and, and it was just stupid. But they, so they decided not to publish it. And it, we, were, we were at the height of our career with them. We were making some really good money. That was the end of our career with them. And, uh, and the Boris thing left. And, the, and, the, and, the, and the, actually, the, and the, in the middle of a Lou Reed interview, Mick Jagger called me on the phone in the middle of this Lou Reed interview a week or two earlier to talk about the interview. So I, I think it's very nice. I just want to take, change something at the end, you know. He was kidding us, you know. Because he, he, he was resentful because we, he thought it was Playboy magazine. And it was for We magazine. But the We magazine had a much better demographic for Rolling Stones than Playboy. Yeah. So it was a real, a real mix-up in his stupidity. And we were too young to sort of... I would, I would have known how to handle that today. I would, I would have been able to handle those things easily today and get them both published. In those days, we were too young and too awestruck by these people to, to think anything but doing what they wanted, you know? But this, this, this sort of triumph, this, this trilogy of interviews with the Burroughs and the Jagger and the Lou Reed interview was also wonderful. And we became tight friends with Lou Reed during the interview, in the middle of which he turned into Frank Sinatra. And it was, it was just an amazing experience being with these people. Yes. And we couldn't get that one published. So it was just a, sort of a disaster, as I say, all, all in one month. I know. In 74. And But then, then getting the book deal from Julius and Ali was a great blessing. So, you know. Yes. And, and years later, there was a kind of an attempt to get Burroughs and Jagger together, wasn't there? Well, I had, Bur I had Jagger over for dinner at Burroughs' apartment in 1980. Yeah. That, but that was, that was a different story. Uh, Burroughs, uh, Burroughs had a close friend called Brian Geiston, yes. who was a well, pretty well-known painter and also a writer, and he, this guy had discovered the cut-up method. And they were very, very close. They were close friends and collaborators, basically. And uh, Geisen had put a lot of energy into trying to get Mick Jagger to star in a film with Naked Lunch. This is in 1972. And Jagger was interested because, you remember, back in 72, he'd been, he, he was doing films. He'd done quite well with films, at least two films. Performance, I guess. Shelter and, and, and performance, right? Yes. And so he, he, was, he was flirting with films, you know, and he had some meetings with Burroughs in London. But things just didn't work out with that. And so many years later, I'm skipping now in time to 1980, when I was doing my book on William Burroughs, um, I was trying to get, have, get, Keith, get Keith Richards to come over to the bunker. Burroughs lived in a place called the bunker. It was a, a fortified building on the Bowery. It, you had to go through three doors to get to his place. It's a bulletproof door, all sorts of things. And so he called it the bunker uh, after Hitler's bunker. Yes. And, um, and anyway, so it was a wonderful place. It was a wonderful place. Uh, and... Uh, and we we gone out to dinner with Andy Warhol, um, who'd been actually charming to us, and wanted to do a portrait of Bill. Took all the Polaroids for the basis of the portrait and stuff. This is all happening, you know. And then 
And then a, then a friend of ours said, well, you can ask Mick Jagger to come over for dinner. And I said, okay. And Mick Jagger, bingo, comes over for dinner like two days later without, you know, much warning. And uh, that dinner with Jagger and Burns and Warhol, uh, which should have been the greatest thing I'd ever done, was an absolute disaster. It was an absolute disaster. Look, look at today, it's very funny. And, and the, te- the tape is extraordinarily funny. But it didn't work out at all as we expected. Yes. That's a long story. That's a long story. But did you, I mean, just, are you able to just describe a little bit of, because there's, the fa- there's some famous, you know, some amazing photographs of them all looking down at their food, sort of poking it away. Yeah. I mean, right. did it, did you suddenly, when did you suddenly realize this is going to be quite a difficult evening? Well, because, uh, because, uh, we, you know, the bunker was sparsely furnished. It basically had a very nice, boardroom table, like a large dining room table with chairs, you know, comfortable chairs around it and stuff. And Andy Warhol came over 15 minutes early, and he and Bill were getting on the house on fire. I, I had the tape recorder running, of course, and I had my photographer, Marsha Resnick, there. She's an excellent photographer. She was there through the pictures, and everything was great. The doorbell rang. He came on time, amazingly, you know, 8 o'clock, he was there, with Jerry Hall, his girlfriend at the time. And uh, came up the stairs and came in. Everyone's very jovial. Hi, Andy. Hi, Bill. Yeah. And, and, and without any preliminary, he said, what are we doing here? What's the purpose of this meeting? There was no kind of chat to sort of get to know. It was just like, what's the purpose of this meeting? You know, Not, not, not nastily, but just, you know, let, let's get down to it. What's this about? You know, Because we had tape recorders on the table and cameras and everything. And so Bur- Burroughs said, the purpose of this meeting is very simple. It's... Uh, Victor, what is this meeting about? <laughs> and and I, I, I actually didn't know, but he told me that someone had called him up uh, about doing, putting an interview, putting him to interview Mick Jagger for some project. I wasn't sure if it was Rolling Stone magazine or if it was for a book. It was really my fault. I should have just said it's for this book that, that this chap's doing because uh, Jagger knew the chap, David Dawson. I should have said it's a book, David, and that would have been fine, but I, I sort of flubbed it. And so the first half hour of the meeting became, well, what is this about? You know, and, uh, and then uh, Bill said, I know what it's about. He went to the next room. I got a piece of paper. He couldn't find a piece of paper. Meanwhile, he and I are smoking pot. No one else is not smoking pot, you know, and it's just very fuddy duddy thing. And, um, and Ed is getting very uncomfortable. And uh, so finally, one was out of the room. I said, look, why don't we all just have a nice time there and just turn it to some massive, you know, we can't remember what it's about. Just to, uh, Bill has some questions for us to ask you next. So, you know, just, just, can we just do it? Of course, let's do that, you know. Meanwhile, Burroughs and I were so broke at the time, I hardly had enough money to buy any food. It's really stupid of me. I mean, I should have gone and borrowed some money, but I was like sort of overwhelmed at this point with work and all sorts of problems with my girlfriend and this and that and the other. And, uh, and so I, I, I managed to buy a loaf of bread and a couple of pieces of pate and some cold string beans. That was, that was the dinner, yeah. along with a bottle, bottle of cheap wine. <laughs> so when I served it, I was like, oh, this is very nice. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, then Burroughs started being interested in here's some questions. He was saying, don't you feel that... Uh, Rock and roll performance is about confrontation with the audience. You know, he had a, he had a, a concept he was working on. And Jagger was kind of difficult, you know, rather than sort of being friendly. Oh, 
He's like, no, that's all, that's not normal, it's all, no, no. And so it became, as far as calling it a nightmare of incommunication, it became like a nightmare of incommunication. And, yes. and so what happened, and there were like six people at the table, there's Jagger and John Hall, Andy, myself, Bill, Liz Derringer, Rick Derringer's wife, who set the meeting up with Jagger, and Marsha. And it turns out Marsha and Jagger had done a photo session like a week earlier. So luckily she started sort of flirting with him a little bit across Jerry Hall. He was responding to this, and that got the conversation going a little bit. They kind of left out Bill and Andy, you know. So if you listen to the tape, you get these moments of that sort of chatter and laughter, it sounds like just what the hope it would be like. You've got these trouble moments of silence, which you always have Yes. I kept trying to ignite the conversation, and after 45 minutes, Jagger says, Is there a phone in this fight? And Bill Lee said, He called my place a fight. <laughs> he went and made a phone call in his car and picked him up. Right. Um, and, and of course, he wouldn't sign. I, I, I sent for, uh, the transcript of the release of his apartment a few days later. Of course, he wouldn't sign the release, and I couldn't use it at the time in my book. Um, it, subsequently, I, I, it's in a book called The Burroughs Warhol Affair, which has been published in a number of countries. Yeah. Um, so it was, it, it, was, it was, you know, it was a very pity. And Andrew's was pissed off with me because he didn't like things going wrong like that. No. So it, it also damaged my relationship with Bill, too, because, uh, you know, he kind of complained to James that I fucked it up. All this kind of stuff. It was really my fault. God, that's so tricky, yeah. isn't it? I mean, did you find? Yeah. I mean, because because obviously, during the sixties, you were you were sort of very much at that age. You sort of experienced the sort of the wave of the counterculture, you know, hippie movement, Woodstock. And then you had Altamont, and then sort of you you then drifted into the well, I didn't drift, but you went into the sort of very much that punk scene in New York as well. So that was quite a different vibe, wasn't it? Altogether, you had bands well, I like. I was in school during the 1960s. I, 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 you know, I went out to California for the summer of love, but I wasn't involved in real age yeah. in the 60s. But by the 70s, by the early 70s, as I say, with Todd interviewing with people in 72, 73, 74, we sort of got involved with a lot of those people. Um, the punk scene really took off, and I guess it, it really began really cooking in New York in 75, 76. Um, so, you know, the punk scene, the punk, I mean, by 77, the punk scene was like everywhere. And the punk scene, and I, I took a lot of punk people over to the bunker, particularly Debbie Harry and Chris Stein from Blondie, Harry Smith and Joe Strummer. Uh, I think there was and also David Bowie and so on, and that sort of thing. But, um, uh, you know, I, it, it, originally I was really involved with, I, I got involved with Warhol in 77. I worked for Warhol. I spent maybe six months doing stuff and I helped write one of his books. I went down to do the Ollie portrait with him, various things. Yes. Had dinner with him, you know, and got to know him. And he was a very sweet, kind man, very generous man. So were you... I mean, and then I got more... I was going to say, were you somebody... I know there was a guy called Danny Fields who was very much part of a, a kind of making so thing. Danny Fields? Danny Fields, he managed the... Oh, Ram- Danny Fields, Danny Fields, yes, of course, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so he managed the Ramones. So you obviously were somebody who was also making things happen and sort of linking people up together as well. So you, so obviously that was a very creative time and, and bringing in people, you know, from the a slightly different scene like David Bowie into that kind of Warhol world, which he'd been interested in in the late... 60s and early 70s when he went and had one of those kind of moments at the factory how did you how did you sort of find you know being yourself you know working all these different characters who were quite they weren't sort of 
quite they weren't young people just making it so you you know impressionable they were very kind of established artists already so that must have felt like a lot of egos and drug addictions kind of in one room at times no well, see, see I, I think that uh to be, now i can say this in retrospect i couldn't have said it at the time but in retrospect um a lot of those people thought of me as one of them in other words, they didn't think of me as a journalist. They thought of me as one of them. Burroughs said, "Fix is one of us. He's not like outside. He's one. He's he's part of our our world, you know." So all those people, and particularly Lou Reed, Debbie Harry, Joey Ramone, uh, Warhol, all these people, he accepted me as as you know as a racer, but in, in, on, in, on an artistic level, so much their own. Uh, I had a kind of, uh, I, I you know. I met them. I married the moment. I, that time was perfect for me. I came into my own in 77. My real career began in 77. And all these people had a lot to do with it. They were very, very encouraging to me, you know. Yes. And uh, they wanted me to write about myself. They don't, they don't want me to write about myself rather than write about other people. And I'm, I'm writing about that at this very moment. I'm writing a book right now about, about that whole situation with why it was that I focus my camera eye on these people rather than on myself because I had I had some pretty good stories I had some pretty interesting fucked up life you know and so on and so on I could express myself they really wanted me to they recognized something in me I think Andy recognized it Andy actually once asked me to collaborate with him on a work I mean he saw me on that level uh you know it's amazing uh but I, I wasn't starstruck I wasn't like overwhelmed or awed by these people very early on in the early 70s, if that was, but by 77, I'd been around, I'd been in this world for five or six years, you know, one way or the other, yeah. the poetry world, the world, world. So I wasn't awestruck. And um, like when I met David Bowie, he immediately talked to me and he immediately started talking to me about Art Deco and furniture and stuff. And, and he was a, a huge fan of William Burroughs. Yes, well, um, quite. He was very fascinated by Burroughs, yeah. And I think he met Burroughs, like, I'm not sure. No, they did, they did a big interview in, in Rolling Stone in 1974. There's a big interview with Burroughs talking to David Bowie and Rolling Stone, which is a really great piece. Yes. Uh, I forget that I did it. The guy who did it was really good. Yeah. Um, so, they, so they sort of knew each other. They had some grounds for each other. Plus also, Burroughs had gone to the factory in the 60s a number of times. Uh, I think he was in one of Warhol's films, The Hundred Most Beautiful People or something. Um, Brian Geisen turned him against Warhol in the 60s rather got through jealousy, I think. A lot of people hated Wall because he was so successful. Yes, they didn't understand the integrity of his work. Did people? I was going to say because because obviously the Beat Generation of the you know Jack Kerouac world, um, they didn't really sort of find themselves. uh, They didn't really like their sort of counterculture and hippie kind of kind of environment that well. You know, much of people like Ken Kesey because there was some some free. You saying they don't like them? That's not true at all. Well, no. When when Jack Kerouac hung out a bit with people like Ken Kesey in the sort of hippie environment of the 60s, he didn't enjoy it because he'd already, he, he'd become quite bitter and irritated by a lot of what they were doing because Neil Cassidy, who was... Um, oh, I know, 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 I this is, this is, I know, I know, I know, I've known about Kerouac for many, many years. So Kerouac became invited because he started writing brilliant prose in 1949, 
And by 1957, when, when On the Road was published, she was burned out. And, you know, he didn't really enjoy his success the way he thinks he might, because at that point he'd become a really serious alcoholic. And so whereas uh, Ginsburg and Burroughs were to have fabulous times in the 60s and the 60s, Kerouac kind of projected that whole decade. But it wasn't because he thought it was a bunch of crap. It's because he was just so drunk and so messed up psychologically, living with his mother, never being able to have a, 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 a good relationship with a woman and so forth, and losing his ability to write to alcoholism. That's what embittered him. Yes. Not, not King. I mean, he also has that scene where he goes to that place and they, you know, there's like some music playing and something gets uptight, but that's, you shouldn't take that to mean you rejected that whole thing. No. He recognized that the hippies were the, beat, were the kids with the beats. He yes. said, in various ways, the hippies are good kids and so on. It's just that he couldn't enjoy it. He couldn't get into it. No. And there's, there's a f- sort of vaguely famous interview where he, He's very drunk and he's smoking and he starts randomly singing around, you know, a song when he's been interviewed. I think that was his last ever kind of interview before he died at the age of 45 or something. And and he looks like he's kind of very red faced and puffed up and um, he doesn't. Yeah, look, yeah, yeah. He doesn't look like he's particularly yeah. swinging with it. So when because you, you know, you were, you know, an academic and a writer and and it sort of would develop. I was, never an, I was never an academic. I did, but I was never an academic. You weren't. At all. I'm not an academic anyway. No. But but you're kind of a, a creative writer and a poet. But yes. then but oh, then yeah. but then, you know, when you started writing books on you know, you did your Muhammad Ali and then you did the the Velvet Underground, did you suddenly feel that this was kind of a bit more of where you wanted to go, you know, writing about the, the sort of the scene that had happened in, in New York? Because, you know, obviously the Velvet Underground didn't sell a lot of albums when they first released it in 1969, but everybody from the punk world and then the sort of the 80s indie world kind of, you know, mentioned the Velvet Underground and, the you know, the Stooges and stuff like that. Did you did you sort of find yourself becoming, you know, much more confident in the 80s of what, you know, of your own creative kind of process? Yes, exactly, because I had this vision of this beat punk generation, I had this vision that, that the punks, were just were, were neo beats, and 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 also were very influenced by the Velvet Underground. It was I felt that the beat generation, the Warhol generation, the punk generation were the same thing, except moving things forward, you know. And they actually, the beat, the punk generation was the last generation that operated under the same moral umbrella as the beats and Warhol, anti-war, anti-the bomb, and so forth. You know, they had the same moral basis. As the Beats and Warhol, yes, that 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 I thought was a magnificent vision, and what I attempted to do, I, I, it's not when you look back at things, it's easier to see how you did things. But I do remember clearly, and I wrote about it in my diaries, wanting to to do this, and I thought I thought my books were doing that, and also I was doing it physically, like taking Andy, taking Joe Strom out of the bunker, taking Andy Wall to meet, you know, and this kind of thing. Of course, I was conscious of doing that. Um, and it, it worked in many ways because uh, Warhol and Burroughs had a big friendship with Debbie Harry and Christine had a big friendship with Burroughs and so on. Yes, that was my vision, and I, be- I became very, very glad to be doing what I was doing. Um, I went through a very, very dramatic change, though, in 1983, because in 1983, uh, the Velvet Underground book was published, but also AIDS had decimated the scene in New York. It essentially have broken up the scene because yes. the punk scene particularly was all about meeting people and going home with them and having sex and everything and everyone had sex with each other, you know. And suddenly you couldn't do that anymore. 
And, and William Burroughs left New York to move back to Kansas. Uh, Lou Reed left New York. Ginsburg uh, left New York. Uh, Andy Wall moved to a new factory, so slamming the door in the past and going into a different world. And I was left on the outside of it because that was the year I, I, was, I signed a contract right at the bathroom of Andy Warhol. And of course, I told him about it, you know. And he said a really beautiful thing to me. He, he had a friend of his sitting next to him who was a friend of mine. And this guy, Christopher Marco, said, hey, Victor, if you write a book about Andy, you can't come to the factory anymore and he can't be your friend anymore. But if you write a good book, he'll love you just the same. It was a really beautiful thing, kind of a damning challenge, because he was so right. If I spent my time hanging out with Andy, I could never have written that book objectively. Yeah. You know, I would have been totally snowed by him. And so sending me away was the right thing to do. But at the same time as he sent me away, as I say, Burroughs left town, Blondie broke up. All, all my social bases evaporated, you know, in, in terms of those three bases at least. And, and the whole thing of, you know, going home with people evaporated. I went into a into a different world working on that Warhol book. It was very exciting, but I was very isolated. I was very isolated during that. And meanwhile, Andrew Wiley had become my agent. He was arranged. I hadn't seen Andrew for a number of years. We broke up in '75, and he he'd had a very rough time because he really couldn't write. He wasn't really a writer, and he couldn't really have a career as a writer. Um, he had a very difficult time dealing with my success and everything. But then in 82, he decided to become an agent, and he's become one of the most successful agents in the world. And he um, did great work for me, getting me a, a good advance on the world book and supporting me through it. Yes. It took me, took me five years to write that book. Five years. It was hell. It must have but been. But it was worth it. You know? It was yeah. a magnificent experience. A difficult, difficult experience. So I went through a lot of changes. But yeah, I mean, and then going on and doing a book about Keith, about Lou, for example. I mean, yes. I mean, I, I, Keith Richards had been in my heart. Since 1963, when I got the first um, EP, and then the album in 64, I played the Stones constantly, um, and I was particularly drawn to Keith. I met Keith, I did an interview with Keith in 77, after he was busted in Toronto with heroin charges. He gave an interview to me for High Times magazine, which is a very dangerous thing for him to do, because of association with drugs. But he did, and uh, he liked the interview, and uh, and so on, and... uh, so he's a big fan of my Burroughs book. He and Anita Pallenberg loved my book on Burroughs and stuff. So when I did that book about Keith, he knew about it. Yeah. Um, he, he wasn't, of course, it was not authorized at all. He didn't try and stop people talking to me. A lot of people talked to me. And um, I think I, I do think he wrote his book off the success of my book, frankly. Yeah. My, my book on Keith is published in like 12 different countries, and it's still in print in a number of countries. Uh, it was a very successful book and also a very good book. Yes, absolutely. Because you you were you were so prolific there. Because you you know after the Warhol book, and then Keith a few years later, and then Lou after that. Did you? Yeah. You weren't obviously you weren't you definitely didn't have any time to um, relax at that period of your life. Well, I'll tell you something. Uh, when the when the, the the Warhol book, Andy Warhol was shot. Sorry, he was shot. Was died in nineteen eighty seven, right? At that time, I was just trying to finish the book, which I'd begun in 83. And his death opened the door for many, many more interviews with people who couldn't talk to him while he was alive. And my editor in England, Paul Seide at Hutchinson Random House, called me up on the phone and said, are you all right? How are you doing? And how's the book and stuff? And they then helped me a lot. So I really worked my British editors, and I ended up going to England in late November of uh, 88, 
and completing the book over there and flying back to New York with a 725-page manuscript on my lap in the airplane. Absolutely astonished because I got the book exactly what I wanted to get. I got the book perfect, you know. It was just an amazing experience. And I came back to New York. And for about a week, I experienced what it feels like to get to the top of your profession. And it's just joyful. Yes. You laugh a lot. You relax. You have fun. You've gone with girls. It's just, you know, it's just like blissful, you know. And then, um, and then two things happened. One is that Andrew Wiley called me on the phone and said that uh, Bantam said my book was unpublishable, um, which actually is something he said. I don't think he said that. But I, I, I had a lot of trouble with Bantam because the book was written in, in, in a, not, not in a standard style of writing, which, of course, it shouldn't be because it's about Andy Warhol. But I had a lot of, had a lot of troubles with Bantam. And they, they, they re-edited the book and they destroyed it. And I really couldn't do too much about it. Um, and I also met a woman, the first woman in my life I thought I could actually marry and spend my life with. And so at the very moment when I had a lot of money for the first time in my life and had the ability to go, go, go through any door in New York was open to me and I wanted to travel. I had so many things I wanted to do. I hooked up this woman and I dropped all my plans for myself. Everything I planned to do, I just dropped completely to be the, the, the sort of knight, knight on the white horse rescues the maiden in distress. Ended up moving moving to the suburbs with this woman. She bought a house in there. We, you know, I paid the mortgage and so forth. It was a disastrous, disastrous, disastrous and insane thing to do. Mm. One of the rules when you make it, never move. Always stay where you are, uh, at least for a year or two before you start trying to change your life. Because you, know, you don't know if you can, can sustain that financial uh, success you had at that time. You don't know how you can sustain it and, and so on. And it, was, it, was, it was just... It, Huge disaster for for this is in 1989. This happened, um, and uh, for a while I was able to do good work on the Richards book. By the time I got to the Reed book, I was really stumbling and supporting myself on drugs and booze, and to the extent of great dishealth, really damaging myself badly. And so by the time I finished the Lou book, and it was published in 1995, I was really a mess. Yes. And I was still making very good money, but I was spending it on, on supporting this woman and her child in this house in the country, which I barely, really went to. And, uh, you know, I, I should have left uh, them, but I, I couldn't. And uh, I, I'm just I'm saying this because I beware all writers when you're young. Don't make bizarre. Don't if you if you make a lot of money in the book, don't change your life. Stay where you are. Don't make don't do anything for that because. My career was most important. I was married to my work. I was married to my books, my books and my children. I was married. I did not want to get married to someone else. But for some reason, I think because of the age thing, a lot of my friends had gotten married and settled down, you know, and I said, well, I guess I should do that too, you know. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was the worst mistake I've made in my life. Um, I, continued to, I continued to write books. Uh, I did the John Cale book, which is very good. But the Patty Smith book I wrote was a disaster. It was just, it was, I shouldn't, it shouldn't have been published. It was so bad. Well, well, and by the time I did my, I, did, I stumbled to the end of my line in 2001. I stopped writing. Yes. With the, um, with your, you know, you were pleased with your Keith book, but with Lou, because you were kind of, you were saying that things were quite difficult. How do you, when you look at that now, do, are you sort of, do you cringe or are you sort of quite pleased with the work? The Lou Reed book? Yes. 
Yeah, oh, I love the movie. I just reread it. I just reread it last week. I, yeah. I think that's probably my best book. Good. Because I because I really loosened up. You know, writing biography is very difficult. And the thing you learn is you have to find a form that that, that mirrors your subject. So you, there's no single form in biography. It's a question of getting the right form for the subject, right? So I, I think I got Lou very, very well. In fact, it's funny because um, after the book on Lou was published, I was doing publicity and I was out there on the radio shows and traveling around. And three different journalists, one from England and two from a completely different time, came up to me and said, I, I met Lou Reed. I asked, I asked my attention to him. He said, did you read that book about me? And he said, no. He said, go and read that book and then come back and interview me. What a fucking compliment that is! I mean, you know. Yes. So he he, he definitely even though, even though his Laurie Anderson hates me for she hates the book or something, uh, he loved it. He, I mean, he would never say that, but he he, he did he did recognize. He, um, he'd always been very, actually very uh, very supportive of my writing. And was it so hard? I, I loved that book. And was you was it hard to write about you know Lou at times you know and he's no, kind of no, it wasn't hard. No, no, it wasn't hard at all. But even um, after you've written a book about Andy Warhol, it's not hard to write a book about anyone. No. Andy right. Warhol's the most difficult person because you can't pin him down because if you pin him down, he's also the opposite of what you just pinned down. Yeah. So it's very easy to write about Lou. Um, the Lou Reed book took me like two and a half years as opposed to five years, you know. Same thing with the Keith Richards book. I mean, both those books are just joyful to write because I love their music. I loved them as you love a kind of heroic figures. I, I didn't know. I only spent I spent twenty four hours with Keith once, um, but I became friendly with with Anita Palenberg, his, his uh, common law wife, and uh, and Marvel a little bit. Um, and uh, and I, I'd known I'd been really close friends with Lou for about two years or so in the mid 70s, 75 to 70, 74 to seventy six. Yes. Um, so I knew him well, and um, and I, I you know I. One of the things I learned with rock stars is it's always better to interview the women. If you can get to the women, they know much, so much more than the men know. Because the men are always very egocentrical talking about themselves. Women will tell you so much more about something. So I got to Keith Richards' major women, except for Patty. Yeah. And I got to Louise's major women, including the, the major news of his life, uh, Shelley Walton, who he was in college with. And she gave me a lot of stuff, a lot of interviews. And... Uh, Plus the whole band, you know, when when um, when the Velvet Underground uh, decided to reform in 1992 or three, it was yes. Lou made it. Lou put into the contract that none, none of them could talk to me for this book, and they all refused to sign it. They all refused to sign it because I got in front of them when I was doing the Velvet Underground, the Mo particularly, and. Uh, and John, you know, I mean, John and I did, did a book together. We weren't necessarily such good friends because uh, what happened with John? Uh, well, I got the plaque from John from the mutual girlfriend. I don't think I've ever with John around this particular girl, but that's back in the past. Yes. So, no, I, the band was very supportive. Of each other. It, was, it was great. It was a great experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you obviously, I mean, I noticed with, you know, right, you know, some writers and photographers, they often have a a real moment where they capture sort of a five-year period in sort of a cultural moment like music. You know, I know the work of Mick Rock, the photographer, he, you know, he captured that early 70s, mid-70s period. And, you know, I know he did other work, but it was kind of, it's kind of his early work. And you obviously, you were there with that, you know, CBGB's, Max's Kansas City, the New York punk scene in the late 70s. And that was obviously 
that sort of set you up very much for your creative poem point, you know, to, that sort of forms a large part of your life and identity, doesn't it? Yes, it does. But, it, but we have to understand, it, it, I went to into punk on the shoulders of Burroughs and Warhol. So I went into punk recognizing that they were the third movement. So I, I was seeing them on a, on a different level than most people were seeing them. I was recognizing that punk was, was an art movement on the same level as the Beats and Warhol. I mean, obviously not. I mean, I, 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 it's hard to say who influenced more people than punks or Warhol or the Beats, but they were kind of equal. And uh, yes, I mean, punk, punk was very, very important to me. Punk was a great catalyst. I met uh, Martin, the, the most important person in my life, um, apart from all these people I'm talking about, is Marsha Resnick. She's a, a photographer. She put out a book called Punks, Poets, and Provocateurs, published in 2015, with her, her portraits of all those people. And I wrote the text for it. And uh, Resnick, who was a great adventurous person, took me into the punk world and... Um, hung out with Johnny Thunders and Bob Quine, Lester Bangs, particularly Debbie and Chris. Yeah. I'm very, very close friends with Joey Ramone and, uh, and so on and so on. So, yeah, I, I love that world. It was a wonderful world. Yes. Did you... Um, Sorry, I, you wrote, you know, I, I was going to say, I mean, because obviously, because I've done quite a lot of interviews of people from that kind of period and, and, and the drug scene, you know, is quite heavy you know there's a lot of heroin a lot of people die and a lot of people's personalities change and then you as you mentioned AIDS came along which was horrendous as well so that if one thing didn't kill them the other thing did and then you know but you had you know that artistic kind of world which was all kind of brilliant but fragile you had you know those painters like Basquiat as well so you know did you manage did you sort of looking back at that did you do you feel kind of pleased that you managed to navigate that as well as you did? What was the last question? Did you are you pleased that you managed to navigate that kind of quite? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. No, no, I'll tell you about that because that's it's a fascinating angle. Um, heroin was unheard of in my life, even though Burroughs had been there. He was not an addict when I met him, and heroin was not something I'd ever seen. And somebody planted a heroin supermarket about five blocks south of CBGB's, which was police protected. Um, and this was obviously done by the authorities to try to destroy punk. Like they, they would put heroin supermarkets in Harlem to destroy the young young blacks. They did the same thing with punk. And heroin, the heroin epidemic that hit punk was before AIDS. And it started it started coming in strongly in, in, in what was there in 75. It got stronger and stronger in 77, 78, yeah. So a number of people I knew became heroin. I was, I was quite close friends with Jean Michel Basquiat, for example. A number of people became heroin addicts, and it had a very detrimental effect. It obviously destroyed, I think, almost every band, except, say, Talking Heads, probably had a heroin addict in the band, at least one, you know? Yeah. And it really cut into the, that whole punk scene. It cut into a, a wider a wider scene, but it largely hit the punk scene, I think, and pretty much kind of, it didn't, completely destroy it because punk was very powerful and carried on but uh, yeah I, I saw that and I, I, I was able to navigate my way through it because uh, although you know one of the things I learned which I did not know was you could sniff heroin I thought you only had to take it with a needle I could never ever put a needle on myself mm -hmm. but it turned out you could sniff it just like cocaine 
that made it much easier for more people to use it. But I knew I didn't have the money to support a heroin habit. I mean, I didn't have any kind of, I was living on a shoestring, right? Yeah. So I, even though I might have taken it, you know, 10 times or something over a period of a few years, um, I never ever got involved in it because um, it's just financially ruinous to be involved in a heroin habit. Yes. Um, at that time, I never, so yeah, I navigated my way through that wall. Yes, yes, I did. And did it, I mean, and when I, you reflect back on that and you were talking about the heroin supermarket, plant, you know, by police protected, does that sort of make you, I mean, how did you, you know, do you feel about that? Because obviously that's quite a, an extraordinary thing that um, the yeah. authorities would try to do, thinking, I know how we could yeah. destroy a scene, we'll just give them heroin. Yeah. Well, Jimmy Carter told the, told the people, we don't want that punk music around. He kind of gave out the order to, to stop punk. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I'm actually, as I say, I'm writing a memoir at the moment which deals with all of this, so I'm, I'm going through it in my mind very much. Yeah, it's a, it's a terrible thing. Yeah. I mean, AIDS, AIDS, AIDS was just an extraordinary, I mean, you know, a lot of people thought AIDS was a conspiracy. I don't think it was. I think it just was a very unfortunate byproduct of the multiple problems people were having in the gay world, you know. So I, I managed to skip, skip I was very, very close to a lot of gay people, but I wasn't gay. So if I had been gay, I'd probably be dead now. Yes. If I'd been a heroin, I'd probably be dead now. But I managed to skip those things while being very closely involved with those people. Um, you know, and so on. Yeah, obviously, uh, I feel a good deal of anger about it. I feel a good deal. It's, I think it's very much part of the story. You have to understand. And you have to understand what heroin really is, because uh, one of the problems with, with drugs is the authorities always give out completely inaccurate descriptions of the drugs. So when you first take heroin, you don't get addicted to it at all, you know. And heroin unplugs the worry cord. Um, there are no more hysterical worried people in the United States. And uh, so pe all people are just tense and worried, like, all the time. And heroin takes that away. It's, it's just an extraordinary experience. It's just an unbelievable experience not to have to worry all the time. Mm. Um, so it's, it's an extreme, it's like Keith said, it's an extremely seductive drug. And it does give you the freedom to work very well for a period of time. But then you find out you've sold your soul and you lost everything. It's just, it's hard to describe how much you lose when you become heroin addict. Well, you, lose, you lose you know, you lose everything, um, including your career. Uh, but, you, you know, you can you can work on it well, as, as many artists have, for a certain amount of time, you know. Look look at uh, Beggar's Banquet to Exile on Main Street, and look at Goat's Head Soup. There's a real falling off there. Mm. That's good. Keith made the, you know, Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, Exile, while he was a junkie. And then uh, Goat says Soup is just like he's, you know, he's lost it. He's lost, he's lost the power that he had. I mean, he regained it, but he, but those albums uh, in the seventies, mid seventies, are not nothing like as powerful as the zenith of the Stones' career. No, blimey, yes. There was also there was also a, there was also a change in personnel because I think there was Mick Taylor was on guitar who'd taken over Brian Jones, and then he left, and Ronnie Wood came in, and suddenly the Stones right. were a bit of a tribute band. True, but yeah, I mean, I don't know, I mean, it's, it's a diff difficult uh, story with that, because um, even though Taylor is a brilliant guitarist, and he obviously gave a lot to those albums, he never had the guitar partnership that, that Jones and Richards had, which is really the base of the Stones music, because no one's playing lead or rhythm, you switch back and forth, you know? Yeah. And he had that, he had the game with Ronnie, but then Ronnie wasn't a strong character as Brian, so, you know, Ronnie became a good tune Rolling Stone, if you will. Yeah, 
it was yeah. a difficult time. But I, I think it's a lot has to do with peace. I mean, peace problems became much larger and much more difficult to handle. Yes. In the, the 70s, after exile. Exile was the last great, great moment of the Stones. Genius, then genius. Then you get some goals. Then you get some goals later on, you know, so, you know, depends what you think, but... Yeah. It's all right. It's, but I was just, just kind of vaguely, lastly, um, I mean, because of your life and how it's kind of developed and, and sort of your childhood and sort of moving from one place to another and, you know, your parents, I mean, have you, have you, have you when you've looked back, do you feel like you've often been searching for a home that somewhere that you feel safe in? Well, not a physical home. I mean, I'm searching for a place in myself that's home. Looking, looking for you know uh, a, a sort of um, peaceful, harmonious relationship with the self, along with the work that comes together. And I think I've struggled with that all my life. I mean, basically, for many, many, many years, I simply married my work, and my work was much more important to me than anything else. Yes. Um, and I sacrificed. Uh, I mean, I, I'm now. Living on my own, which I never expected to happen. I always had a woman in my life up till um, about 1997 or so, 98. Uh, and then I, since I've had a serious girlfriend to live with, um, and that's been very sad. Uh, it's funny, you know, as you get older, uh, you really do learn a lot more about yourself. And um, I feel, I feel really great in a lot of ways at the moment. Um, it's not good to talk about what one's raising at the time was raising it, so I can't go into that at all. But I'm having a good experience with this memoir. Yes. And uh, a lot of it has to do with, with coming to terms with myself, the path I walked, what I've done, what I could have done, what I'm doing now. You know, I, I still have a lot left in me. I've got two or three books in the works, all of which I think are really great books, and I'm, I'm going to have a new period of time now. Uh, when these books start coming out. Uh, but I didn't publish a book for many years after 2001, which is a very sad thing for me. And, uh, that, and you know, I, I made my own life was uh, publishing a book every two or three years. Yes. Luckily, with the internet, I managed to keep in touch with a lot of people all over the world. I still get letters from phones and people who still love my books, and my books are, you know, still selling like in Russia right now. Yes, absolutely. Did that? Did that just kind of just lastly? I mean, did that experience of doing the the Patty Smith book was that? Did that sort of knock the confidence to the point where you felt quite, you know, that the wind was out of the sails, so to speak? The 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 the, the, uh, the collapse of the Patty Smith book was a convergence of the disastrous law manager had with my wife in the suburbs. Uh, my agent uh, sort of betrayed me in a way, and and, uh, and my own drug problems, my own serious drug and alcohol problems at the time, uh, really was the reason for that. Perhaps uh, I, you know, um, money was supposed to come through to me at certain times to support the project. Didn't come. I mean, this is too complicated. And it was, it was a fear. It did, it did not, it did not knock my confidence in a sense because I think the John Cale book was a very good book and I wrote a book with B.B. Buell called Rebel Heart it was only published in America but it got great reviews in the New York Times book review um, I'm still writing well uh, I think it was the end of myself as a biographer 
I don't think I'm interested in doing any biography anymore. Mm-hmm. But that's the kind of stamp because, you know, when there's no biography, there's only a certain number of people you're going to really, really deeply care about. You know, in my case, I, I have to know someone to write a book about them. And so I did know Lou, I knew Andy, and I knew Keith well enough to be able to do it. Um, and so on. And I, I, and I, I didn't really have that kind of connection with anybody else who would have uh, been a big subject. Yes. Patty was a great subject. And I, I failed in the past, but also, I, I'll tell you, you know, I made some cardinal mistakes. For example, Patty's husband had recently died, and uh, children were in their teens. I knew a great deal about the very bad aspects of the relationship between her and her husband and also her own drug problems. I just couldn't write about them because of the children. It was, it, a biographer should never have that kind of emotion. A biographer should not care about that kind of thing. Yes. But so I pulled my punches on the Patty book for one thing. I also just didn't do the work. I was paralyzed uh, in a lot of different ways. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it, ultimately it's completely my fault. Um, but no, I mean, I've been, I've been, I continue to relate. Uh, I just am trying. I, the, the thing with the memoir is, every book you have to find the right form for the book. That, that's the, the, the secret to, to writing a good book is to find the right form for it. I've written a thousand pages of memoir. I never quite got the right form for it, you know. And I think mm-hmm. I, I hope I've got that down now. I, I think I'm just beginning to break through. Yes. And, and then, then actually speaks it speaks directly to say one it speaks directly to your earlier question because it's it's really about my coming to terms with and better understanding what happened to me during my life and what forces motivated me or tripped me up or held me back that I had not faced you know during that thing. they say that uh, great artists do their best work when they confront what distresses them most. And I think because of the nature of my work, I did not confront my own demons. I was confronting other people's demons in these books. I wasn't confronting my own demons. Yes. And in the memoir, of course, that's what I had to do. And it took me a long time to get through that and realize that and understand that. And I think what I'm doing now is confronting those demons. And that's why I think I'm doing really good work. Mm. And, it, and, just, and just, I mean, how long have you been clean, so to speak? Uh, since about uh, 2007. And was that quite a, a, a process to sort of really... Had you had attempts in the past to try and brought, uh, clean up and and then not quite happen? Well, I, I, was, I, was, I, was, I was in the methadone program for a number of years. And that's like... That's, that, that's one of the biggest nightmares of my whole life, the methadone program. It's like going into the world of Alice in Wonderland. It's it's all based on huge lies, and it's it's very uh, destructive and horrible. I mean, of course, it, it saves a lot of people, enables them to live lives rather than dying. But I had very very bad experience in that sort of thing. The whole thing bit me on the ass so hard it took away so much of anything. That when I got, got away from it. I never, ever wanted to have anything to do with all that stuff. I mean, I, if someone showed me this kind of drugs, I would punch them in the face and throw them out the window. Yes. I mean, I, I have no desire, I have no appetite for anything. I, I just really, you know... Um, you know, it's, it's funny, when you've been at the top and you go down to the bottom, you take a lot of pictures when you're down there in the same way you take a lot of pictures when you're on the top, you know? So I did learn a lot from going down to the very, very, very bottom 
uh, where you're undimensioned, you're, you're, you don't want to count. You're no longer, you're no longer respected by society. You know, you're a reject of society. I experienced that. Um, and, you know, I'm sure it, it strengthened me in some ways, but, uh, you know, like I said, I'm going for the process at the moment. Yes. Um, yeah, so... Were you, um, when you were, you know, at hitting rock bottom, did you find any friends that sort of came, came and tried to help you out or were you, did you feel yes, quite isolated? No, Marsha Resnick, Marsha Resnick stayed with me through all those years and we weren't, we weren't, we were, um, we, we had a kind of an affair when we first met each other, but after that we were just basically very close friends and, uh, I mean, she was, I, I always been like in love with her and, and, you know, Madly attracted to her and all that, but um, most of our relationship was a relationship with companion. We we worked together a lot, you know. I would, I would get I would use her in my articles and my books, and she'd ask me to write for her for the photographs and stuff. And uh, in about 2005, when I when I walked out of the methadone program, but still addicted, addicted to methadone, which is much much harder to get off than heroin. It's much much harder to get off. Uh, she came to my rescue. And took care of me and saw me through that. And to this day, she's my closest friend. And uh, yeah, and, and she she continued to work. I mean, she, she's still working today. Yes. And um, you know, it's great. I mean, I, I was just talking to Debbie Harry recently. They're, they're working on a book set, a brand new book set. I wrote a big essay to the introduction of the book that goes in the set stuff. So I've been talking to Debbie and stuff. She's really thriving. She's in great shape and. Uh, and it's just wonderful to see someone there because Debbie, Debbie is kind of almost one of the classic counterculture characters of, of the last, you know, from the 60s throughout yes. the present. But, you know, that, that world is so alive. It's just, going, it's just sort of on the internet really now. It's not so much. We don't want to meet in basement clubs and read our poetry to each other. No. As much as we operate on the internet and now this strange, this insane virus, this insane situation in America is just... What's saving me is that I had this wonderful mission you know, to, to get this book finished. And then, so I'm, I'm very happy to get up every day and face that and face the mood. Yes. Um, I wish I could go to New York and see people, but I obviously I couldn't. I wanted mm. to come to London. I'm very close friend in London, Barry Miles. Oh, God, um, Barry, yes. Dear old Barry, yeah. He's my closest friend since 1970. Nice, Three, nice. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so, Victor, I mean, just to kind of last, I mean, if you could have said something to a, an 18 year old self starting out in your creative world, I mean, if there was, some, you know, a bit of advice that you've, you know, wisdom you've you've kind of picked up over the, the X amount of decades, I mean, what would, you know, if you could have just whispered something into the, you know, that ear, what would you, what would you say? If I was advising an 18-year-old... Yeah, or, or just yeah, that yeah, kind yeah. of bit of... Yeah, just that bit of advice yeah. that you wished you'd had or the advice that... The, the, the wisdom that you've kind of thought, yeah, yeah. God, that's... that's yeah, I'll tell you. I'll yeah. Tell you. What I advise people to do is, is to recognise if you're a creative artist, you must recognise your work is the most important thing in your life. That you are married your work and never betray the work if you get married if you give your heart to somebody else that in a way that takes you away from the work you're betraying the work if you fall to drug addiction or alcoholism 
you're betraying the work. You've got to stay with the work. And you have to confront yourself with what with your greatest fears. You must you must realize that confronting your greatest fears is when you're going to do your very best work. So don't ever shy away from confronting the things, the demons you have. Because if you do that, you'll break into your greatest period. And 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 you can work your whole life. This is not just something you do for five years and when you're young. You can work throughout your whole life until you die. I'm 71. And I think I've got another 15 or 20 years to go. And I'm going to work every day of those 20 years until I die. I'm not going to, you know, I mean, I, I mean, it's, it's good to have fun. It's very, very important to have friends. Mm. It's very important to be loyal to your friends and to recognize your friends. And, and I mean, girlfriends, love is a wonderful thing. And it's very important to have those things. Just don't, don't, just don't think it's more important than your work. If you're an artist. Yes. I remember and, and, that. And don't, don't ever, don't ever, don't ever fall for the, for the planner. Of, of addiction. There's nothing glamorous about um, heroin addiction or any kind of drug addiction. It's dirty, it's filthy, it's ugly, you get fat, you get bloated, you can't get a heart on, you, you look disgusting, you stink. Nothing, there's nothing at all glamorous about it. It's horrible. It's disgusting and horrible and makes you want to vomit. You, and you do end up vomiting all over yourself, so stay away from that. Don't yes. think it's cool. <laughs> I definitely don't. Right. Well, look, Victor, fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for giving me this this time and um, amazing kind of um, in, yeah, insights. But also, look, looking forward, you know, I, I sort of, I know you've got a compilation of a book out called uh, Beat Punks, which is um, a, a, a kind of a classic, isn't it? So um, a kind of collection of your writing. So hopefully that'll be fascinating to sort of uh, to read this next book, the, the memoir, which will be even more exciting. Oh, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, man. My memoirs are going to be. Huh. <laughs> I have a lot to say. That, I have a lot to say that nobody knows about. Yes. I know this is true. This is going I'm to be. I'm working hard. I'm working hard, and I'm very keen to get them out. So. Yes. Well, look, Victor. Good thank you. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure, man. Thank you very much, David. Well, look. Thanks, Victor. You. Take care. All right. Take care, man. Bye bye. Bye bye. I love the awkwardness of those last moments. Anyway, that's why I've kept them in. Right. That's it, Victor. Chris, thank you ever so much for that interview and your time. That was magic. Anyway, if you want to find out any more information, I don't know, go to amazon.co.uk. Who knows? I'm sure there'll be more information about him elsewhere on the internet. There isn't a lot, actually. But anyway, look, you've got this interview. What more do you want? Now, this has been the C86 Show. David Eastall, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. Also, they've all been archived. Check it out. Same thing, C86 show. And that's on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's good stuff. I don't know. It's me amusing myself, really, in a good way, you know. <laughs> anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.